from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. You know, we all have a a responsibility to act on knowledge, and that's why I didn't want to let this story go. I didn't want, there was much more to be known if I could be on the ground and conduct these tests. If there were any other independent light sources, figure out where the moon was in the sky, meaning it was too dark to even register a reading. Contrast detection was spotty. And now they know, and so we'll see what they do. I think the family senses that this office is overwhelmed, um, that it's in shambles, I believe, as they as they said. I'm Sarah Funsky. Eight months ago, journalist Allison Flowers co-authored a story on a police shooting in South St. Louis that, in her words, remained shrouded in darkness. In 2019, a St. Louis police officer shot Cortez Bufford in the gangway between two houses in the Carondelet neighborhood. Officer Lucas Roethlisberger said that he saw the 24-year-old pull out a gun, and the officer said he'd shot in fear of his life. But in her cover story for the Riverfront Times, co-published on The Intercept last summer, Allison Flowers questioned that. And now, in a new piece for the Riverfront Times, she goes beyond questions. She attempted to recreate lighting conditions on the night of the shooting. And she's emerged from her forensic experiment almost certain that Officer Roethlisberger could not have seen a gun. Allison Flowers is director of investigations for the Invisible Institute. That's a nonprofit journalism production company on the south side of Chicago. She's also the author of this week's Riverfront Times cover story, and she joins us today to talk about it. Allison Flowers, welcome back. Thank you so much. So in your story, whether Officer Roethlisberger was justified in this shooting comes down to whether he could have seen a gun potentially aimed at him by the victim. And your report suggests it would be all but impossible. That's even though there was a full moon. Why is that? So we used uh, basically a forensic investigation here. It's really at the heart of human rights reporting to figure out what you can know about these fundamental human rights violations, and we all have a responsibility to act on that knowledge. So what we did here was we combined traditional reporting with this type of forensic work, and we're seeing newsrooms all across the country adding these units to their mix. And I kind of grew out of this tradition, so it's become second nature to me from investigating wrongful conviction cases. I wanted to look at the moonlight to your question because it was really important to gauge visibility for the officer. He's making the allegation after chasing, immediately pulling his gun on Cortez and chasing him into a gangway and shooting, uh, firing his gun eight times, hitting Cortez five or six times. He's making this allegation that he had to shoot because he was in fear for his life because Cortez pulled out a weapon and pointed it at him. Um, But the gangway was extremely dark. Um, His own partner could not see when he entered the gangway uh, several minutes after the shooting. Um, And so it it really does call into question, could the officer have seen Cortez pull a weapon? Because that's what really establishes reasonable fear for the officer uh, under the Fourth Amendment. We're seeing that officers can um, can shoot and kill if they have if they can claim in court that they had reasonable fear for their life that that excessive force uh, falls under 
you know, Fourth Amendment protections for them. And that's what this whole national conversation about qualified immunity is all about. So it was really important to replicate those conditions, judge if there were any other independent light sources, figure out where the moon was in the sky, and to use a special set of, uh, of forensic tools uh, to measure not only the brightness of the space, but how strong the contrast was of a stand-in against the fence at the end of the gangway, as well as um, an object that they would be holding, uh, which was sort of a stand-in gun. Uh, to be clear, we did not use a real gun for this experiment. We actually used a can opener in the place of the gun. And you played the part of the officer in this. So you were standing there where the officer would have been standing, trying to see what you could see. And I think it's it's worth noting here that when you did this experiment, the person who was playing the part of the victim was a white person. And Cortez Bufford, who was killed by this police officer, he was black. If anything, you say this makes it even more likely that the officer could not have seen Cortez. How does that play into this? Right. So the night that Cortez was shot, it was a 99% full moon. So it was about as bright as it could be. But when I went back to the gangway to do this reconstruction, it was a 99.9% full moon. So it was actually, you know, even brighter. But the moon was not directly in line of the gangway. The altitude and azimuth uh, were such at the time of the shooting that it was it was off of the gangway. It was uh, so it was not illuminating the gangway. There were no other independent light sources. There was a porch light on um, of the one of the neighbors' homes right before you enter the gangway, but that actually would have made it more difficult for the officer to see as his eyes adjusted. Um, so I ran through my tests. There was some contrast detection, but contrast detection just means that you can see that there's a blob or a shadow. It doesn't tell you what the object is. And for that, you really have to use uh, your own human eyeballs. So I have 20-20 vision. I approached the gangway. I did kind of a voice memo on my phone to uh, keep track of my observations. The porch light was in my eyes. It did make it harder to see at first. I waited it out. I gave you know as much uh, benefit of the doubt and a conservative read of the situation as possible. Um, you know, the officer had seconds and I was in the gangway for, for several minutes. Um, so I waited that out. When I was at the mouth of the gangway, which, by the way, is where the officer said he was when he was firing, even though shell casings indicate he was further into the gangway. But when I was at the mouth of the gangway, I couldn't even see the, the, sta the stand-in, a person at the end of the gangway. That's mm -hmm. how dark it was. As I walked about a quarter of the way through, I could start to see a person. When I was about halfway through the gangway, which is uh, where it seems maybe the furthest the officer would have gone, um, that's when I I could see a person there very clearly, a white person, um, but I couldn't see an object in their hand. They already had the can opener out, and I said, okay, now pull the can opener out. They already had it out. That's hmm. how much I couldn't tell that they even had it at that time. And so we're several minutes in. I'm halfway through the gangway. I can't see anything. And you know, I, I walked all, it wasn't until I was all the way at the end of the gangway, practically standing in front of the person that I could tell there was an object in their hand, but I still could not even tell what it was. And so it just stands to reason based on this experiment, the fact that our lux meter, which measures brightness was under, meaning it was too dark to even register a reading. The contrast detection was spotty. It really does not stand to reason that the officer could see what he claims to have to have seen. He could not have seen Cortez pulling a gun and pointing it at him, which 
creates the reasonable fear under the under the law for him to shoot. Now, this wasn't the only piece of evidence that you looked at in this case, and specifically in this follow-up to your original very in-depth uh, uh, story about this. You also obtained a 911 call made by a neighbor reporting this shooting. Let's listen to that. St. Louis City Police, Erica. Listen, ma'am, I live at 533 Bates. There was somebody between my house and the next house firing shots. Uh, I mean, they're right outside my wall. I live in a frame house. And how many shots did you hear? One, two, one, two, three, five shots. Okay. All right, well, I'll get an officer out there. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that is a 911 call reporting what proved to be a police shooting of a man named Cortez Bufford. Now, Allison, what's interesting about this 911 call, as you point out in the story, the neighbors seem to have no idea that this had been a police shooting. What does that suggest to you? Exactly. The neighbor doesn't say that he heard someone say, drop your weapon, police, drop your gun, as the officer claims that he said. So this this resident was not under the impression that this was a, a police-involved uh, incident whatsoever. The other thing that really strikes me about this 911 call is the division of shots. There's two groupings that he's uh, relaying to the dispatcher. He says one, two, and then three, four, five. And when you look at the autopsy and the way in which Cortez was shot and the angle of shots, which I discuss in the piece, it's suggestive of, suggestive of two clusters. It's very hard to n- order the number of shots, but what it what it seems to align with is that the first and less precise body shots, perhaps when v- visibility was even more limited, uh, perhaps as the officer's eyes were adjusting in the gangway from that porch light, that's where you have the first two shots to the body. And then you have three shots that are very precise to the face and head. And, you know, it. it when I first saw that, it made me think, that perhaps the officer could see because it was so precise. Um, And I could see a person once I was deep enough into the gangway. I just couldn't see what they were holding. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, you know, it seems to suggest that the the second cluster of shots could have been what the neighbor was hearing. You also hear in the background of that call someone say, at least, which again lines up with uh, the, the number of shots, eight shots were fired total. So, Allison, you reported in your first story eight months ago that this is one of 20 police shootings where the Office of Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner has simply not made a determination. She hasn't cleared this officer. She also hasn't brought charges. Did anything happen in this particular case after your initial report last summer? Yes. So uh, the circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, did reach out to the Bufford family. She met with them after the story. um, So it it did get her attention. Um, According to the Bufford family, she said she would do an on the ground investigation. She connected them to other grieving families whose loved ones have been claimed in police killings. Um, She apparently told them that she only has one investigator to look into these cases, but she wanted to create a unit for them. And indeed, you know, they announced on air during our last reporting in a statement that they were seeking more funding. Um, But, you know, since that initial meeting and one brief one with an investigator who talked to the friend Cortez was with at the BP just before he was gunned down by the officer, the Buffards have not heard anything. Um, They also said that the circuit attorney's office was having a hard time finding a video that a resident 
who was also an ear witness turned over to them. So they've potentially lost evidence in this case. And Gardner's media relations spokesperson uh, did uh, respond to, to me yesterday. We had sent numerous inquiries in advance of the story and we did not get a response uh, for comment, but she did reach out to me yesterday after the story ran saying that they are investigating the case. Um, but you know, neither the buffers nor any of the ear witnesses or residents that I've spoke to have heard from them. How does the family feel about how sh her office has handled this? I think the family senses that this office is overwhelmed um, that it's in shambles, I believe, as they as they said, um, they have retained other counsel for a potential civil suit, and so you know there may be a few avenues for them. But of course, they would like Kim Gardner to take this case more seriously. Um, as I said at the top of this interview, you know we all have a, a responsibility to act on knowledge, and that's why I didn't want to let this story go. I didn't want there was much more to be known if I could be on the ground and conduct these tests. And now they know, and so we'll see what they do. So we also uh, reached out to the circuit attorney's office for comment, and we asked specifically if they'd made any determinations in any of those 20 cases that you referenced, police shooting cases where they hadn't cleared the officer, hadn't brought charges. They responded uh, with a very short statement that did not answer the question. It reads, quote, the circuit attorney's office holds anyone who violates the laws of the state of Missouri accountable, even police officers. Officer-involved shootings are very complex and unique cases which require thorough investigations that take time. Currently, this case is under investigation and we will not comment. Allison, in our final minute here, you wrote about how forensic journalism helped bring about charges in the case of La Laquan McDonald in your own Chicago. Do you feel like a prosecutor could pick up this investigation that you did and run with these findings and, and use this to advance a case? I hope so. You know, in other countries, journalists actually testify in court um, about about their findings in, in this field. Um, and it's a growing field in this country. I've done the work as transparently as possible. And they're right. The truth can be very complex and elusive. But, you know, what I hope to show here in this follow up is why wouldn't you try to know everything that can be known? And, you know, in my own role as a journalist, I'm trying to expand these reporting techniques and deploy these methods to find the truth. Um, and I hope the work stands for itself and what we were able to uncover. Um, you know, the, the lighting conditions was, was just one piece of it. There were so many other nagging questions about this case that I was really happy to dig into. Well, Allison Flowers, we thank you for joining us today to discuss it. Thank you very much. Allison is director of investigations for the Invisible Institute. That's a nonprofit journalism production company on the south side of Chicago. She's also the author of this week's Riverfront Times cover story. You can read that now at riverfronttimes.com, uh, or you can pick up the issue that's hot off the press. It's out there now on the streets. We also have a link to the online piece on our website. That's stlonair.show. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. 
If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.